and Hound podcast. Hello and welcome to the Horse and Hound podcast. I'm Pippa Room, magazine editor here at Horse and Hound. Well, it's been another great week for British horse sport with two medals at the European Dressage Championships and we'll be talking a little bit more about that later on. First, we look back at the show jumping European Championships with an interview with the best British team member, Emily Moffat. She talks about her relationship with her top horse, Winning Good. We just clicked and we have such a good bond and partnership. And, you know, I go out to the stables and he pokes his head out and I call him and I say, Winnie! He's like my absolute best friend. As well as reflecting on the Dressage Europeans, this week we'll discuss two other big stories, the change in the trailer test laws and riders' mental health. Finally, equestrian psychology coach Charlie Unwin kicks off his mini-series by talking about managing your inner game. Given that largely the horse performs as a function of how you perform as a rider, it's really important to understand what's going on, what actually affects our own game and get the best out of the horse. More from Charlie later. For now, pick out that last foot and let's get started. So I'm here now with this week's podcast guest. She is joining us fresh from her debut at the European Show Jumping Championships in Germany last week. Her first time as a British team member at a senior championship. It's Emily Moffat. Emily, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. I'm happy to be here. So last week was obviously a huge milestone for you and you had a great individual result as well with winning good. Let's just reflect on the experience a little bit. When you were called up and got that selection, what was your initial reaction? Um, you know, I was obviously a bit disappointed that I didn't get to go to Tokyo, but I was also still very excited to be able to go to a championship at all. I had no clue who the team was, so I was always like, oh, I wonder, you know, who's going to be on the team. And then when I found out who the team was, I was so excited and I knew that we were going to have such an amazing week and... It was so fun and, you know, I honestly, I actually I said to my mom when we were leaving, I was like, I'm actually quite sad to leave because we had so much fun. So. <laughs> That's brilliant to hear. And did you know the other team members? It was Georgia Tame, Joe Stockdale, William Whitaker. Did you know them quite well beforehand or not so much? Georgia, I'm quite good friends with. Um, Will, I've, I've known for a long time. Joe, I, I've only ever seen a few times, so he probably was the person that I didn't know the best, but we all clicked and got along like we'd been friends for ages. It was really nice. Oh, that's good to hear. There was a good sort of atmosphere between you. And did you have sort of a, a pinch me moment during the week when you put on that jacket with the flag for the first time or going into the arena? Was there a moment when you went, wow, I'm really doing this? I, I think I tried to just keep my head very level because I think it's easy to let the pressure get to you if that makes sense and so of course I had times where I was like oh my gosh this is so cool and exciting but I just kept reminding myself like this is just you know we're just gonna do what we always do and I think I specifically that first day I was a bit like I was unsure of the format and I I didn't know I got a little caught up in it and the results showed that and then after that I gave myself a stern talking to and then I you know I was back in the swing of things so yeah, so sort of let's talk through the week. Tell us about the first day. The format on that day, which you just alluded to, is that it is to some extent a speed test and the yes. faults and speed are converted into penalties, aren't they? 
Yes, that was actually really difficult for me. And I think going into it, I, I didn't really know what to expect. Ben and Di, of course, have um, had explained it to me, but I think I still didn't really know what to expect. And Winnie and I have never really gone against the clock. And, you know, we spend so much time putting him in a little box, keeping him as contained as possible, which, you know, anybody that's seen him knows he's a bit of a wild child. So I was actually the most nervous for that first day, even though it's the smallest, because it was just quite unknown for me and Winnie. And, um, you know, okay, we didn't have the best of results, but I was just a bit relieved to get that out of the way, if I'm honest, because I knew that that was going to be the hardest day for me. And I've said to a few people that I've definitely learned a lot having experienced it. You know, it's totally different experiencing it than somebody just explaining it to you. Yeah, definitely. And um, Emily, just referencing the British team manager, Di Lampard, and her trainer, Ben Mayer, there talking about helping her with the tactics on that first day when I think you had three down, but actually had quite a quick time, although you say yes. that's not really your forte. I think, you know, they said to me, you, you really just have to go for it with no regrets sort of thing. And I was thinking, oh my gosh, I have no clue what I'm going to do. But I just went in there and I, I tried to keep it as smooth as possible. But I think just the second I asked Winnie to go get a bit of a bigger canter, he was like, woohoo, party time. <laughs> um, so yeah, you know, we were lucky. We did have quite a quick time. So the faults didn't you know, of course they affected us, but it wasn't like a huge, huge blow. You know, we made it to the final. And so that was, I was relieved. I thought after that first day, I was, you know, I was really disappointed, but you know, these things happen. Yeah. And how did you sort of go forward from that first day into the, the second day, another day of team jumping? How did you sort of get your mindset in the right place for that first big day? Mm, like I said, I, I wasn't, I was most nervous for the first day because I knew if I could go in and just worry about the jumps that we would be clear or maybe have an unlucky rail like we did that first day. I wasn't sure how he would react having done speed the previous day. I didn't know if that would maybe carry over a little bit. And I, I do think it did a little. And it certainly didn't help with that water because, you know, again, you have to ask them to go a bit forward. But he slowly got better well, and, and myself, we both got better as the week went on. And I think, you know, that that's what makes him such a special championship horse, you know? Yeah, so four faults on the second day was a really strong contribution to the team effort. And obviously then the team made it through to the final on Friday. What was the um, the feeling in the camp finding out that you had made it through to that team final? Was that a big moment? We were all sitting in the VIP watching and just having a bit of a laugh and we were all quite happy with our results and um you know we were quite an underdog team and I had never been to a championship neither had Georgia or Joe and Will's horse was very inexperienced and there was a lot of unknown for us so I think we were kind of watching we really had hoped that we were going to go to the final but I, I'm not sure if we expected it and then my my mom looked at me and she was like I think you're through to the final and I looked at Will and I was like, oh my gosh, we're through. And <laughs> We were all so excited. And I think that alone was such a huge accomplishment for all of us, considering how much, you know, not only was it horse inexperience, it was rider inexperience. It was, you know, a lot of uncertainties and unknowns, like I said before. 
Yeah. And then going into that third day, you jumped a clear round, the only clear round for Britain in the whole championship. How did that feel in the ring and how did you feel afterwards? The night before we had a team dinner and I said to everybody, I'm going to jump clear tomorrow. And they're like, okay, we like it. You know, we like the positivity. And I, and I just really felt it. You know, I knew when he was improving and I knew I felt in my comfort zone, just being able to focus on jumping a clear round. And I, um, was finishing my last vertical in the warm-up and he, I could feel that he was doing something strange with his tongue, like maybe he had put it over the bit or done something like that. And I was like, oh no, Ben, can you come check, you know? Because he, he does have a tendency to play with his tongue a bit. Anyway, he sorted it out and he's like, okay, you've got to go in, you've got to go in. And I was like, oh my gosh, this is, you know, not the perfect way to go into the ring. But I just took a deep breath and Di looked at me and she was like, you've got this. And, you know, I just kind of thought, you're right, I do... This is what we do all the time, and we're so good at it, and I do have this. We've totally got this. And I cantered to the first fence, and Winnie was so in the zone, and I just knew. I was like, oh, yes, we're jumping clear. And it was, it was an awesome feeling and an awesome way to – well, at the, at the time, I didn't know if I was going to make it to the final, but, you know, I, I assumed that I wasn't going to because of the score on the first day, and I just thought, you know, what an awesome way to end – my first championship experience. Yeah, definitely. And sort of finishing up the team competition, Great Britain finished ninth in the final overall. And what were sort of your thoughts as a team afterwards? Yeah, I think, you know, we had a lot of unlucky rails. I think it could have been a lot different. But again, we were so, I don't think there were any expectations. We just wanted to do the best that we could. So I think, you know, we were all very happy with, you know, I shouldn't say we were happy. Of course, we were disappointed and we wanted to do better. But with the circumstances, I think we all felt that we really learned a lot. And, you know, there's so much to improve on. Like you can see that there was so much potential there as a team. Yeah, definitely. And you then did qualify for the individual final, your very first championships, which is a huge achievement. You elected not to actually jump in that final. What were your sort of thoughts behind making that decision? I was a bit 50-50, you know, of course I was like, oh my gosh, what a what an accomplishment, I'm so excited. I knew realistically I wouldn't, I probably wouldn't move up super far, but I just thought, you know, what a cool thing to be able to do. And then the other side of me was thinking logically, you know, is it worth the amount of jumping? You know, we're not going to be able to medal and, you know, realistically. And so I was battling with those thoughts a bit and then... Ben and I made the decision to save him because, you know, we, we all knew logically that it probably, we probably weren't going to move up so far. And he's such a special horse and I have so many, I think we all have so many hopes and goals and dreams for us as a partnership and I think we just put him at the forefront of our mind and we have to save them, you know, they're, they're horses and they like to injure themselves on the best of times. So, you know, we have to save him as much as we can. And he did, he did his job. And, you know, we just felt that that was the right thing to do for him. Yeah. And tell me a little more about your partnership with him. How long have you had him and how did you first team up with him? We've had him since he was eight. He's 12 now. I actually never tried him. Ben tried him and said, called my dad and said, you have to have this horse. He's amazing, which, you know, Ben never really gets that excited about that sort of thing. So my dad said, you know, okay, let's do it. 
And then I didn't ride him for a bit, and Ben produced him a little bit, and you know, we all knew he was quite feisty, and he can throw his head around a bit, and he's very strong, but I really needed, you know, that next step up horse, you know, that next gear of a horse. And um, Ben had explosion as well at the time, so he said that I could take Winnie if I wanted to. And um, I said to him that I felt that it was the right time and that I would be able to ride him and start, you know, in two-star level. And it just worked out timing-wise. We went to Oliva Nova and things like that. It was right from the start a great partnership. You know, we okay, we had to play around with bits and things like that because he is strong and we have had our bumps in the road. He is not the easiest by any means, but we just clicked and we have such a good bond and partnership and you know I go out to the stables and he pokes his head out and I call him and I say Winnie and he like pokes his head out and he's all excited to see me and he knickers and you know like we're we're best friends you know I always tell everybody he's like my absolute best friend oh that's so good to hear and you reference trying you know playing around with different bits with him and you also ride him in a nose net I noticed in the ring Mm. what's um what's the thinking behind that I noticed at home when there were maybe a bit more bugs in the air or, you know, like pollen, he would sneeze a lot. And so I thought, you know what, I, I might as well try it. You know, it can't do any harm. And I put it on and he instantly stopped. So I thought, okay, you know, we've sorted that. And then I thought, well, I may as well try in the ring. Like, you know, there's, there's going to be no downside to it. And He seemed to like it. I don't know if it's made all the difference in the world, but I certainly don't think it's, you know, there's any negative side to it at all. So, and I'm a bit like if one, if something works one time, I'm like, okay, that's it. We're sticking with it. (laughs) (laughs) And um, what are sort of his, his best qualities? What makes him such a great horse? He has the heart of a lion, the biggest heart of any horse I've ever ridden. You... He just wants to do it so much. He loves it and he goes into the ring and you can feel him grow into this whole new horse, you know. And I actually, I was laughing with my mom. We always laugh and say that I perform under pressure so much better than if, you know, maybe it's just another day or another show or a bit of a smaller show. If it's a big five-star or, you know, a Nations Cup, I always, like, it really revs me up and I love it. And, you know, I think he has the same exact quality and that's why we're such a good team in these big events because we both rise to the occasion. Yeah. And does he have any quirks or funny habits? Um, well, he likes to charge at the fences, which is really great. Love when he does that. <laughs> um, <laughs> other than that, no, you know, he's very, very straightforward in the stable and he's very sweet. He just is very strong and, you know, quite difficult to ride in the ring. But I, you know, when they jump like that, you, you have all the tolerance in the world for whatever they want to do. <laughs> yeah, for sure. And um, just uh, just remind our listeners, what have been sort of your, your proudest moments with him and your best results? Oh, gosh. I would have to say Dublin. That was my first Five Star Nations Cup. And I went into the ring and I rode double clear so our last rider didn't even have to ride. So that was extremely exciting for me. And the crowd and the show, just everything about it was 
a memory that I always smile and feel so much. I still feel like I'm excited about it when I think about it. And then obviously the Europeans is just such a great milestone to have with him. Those two definitely stick out in my mind. Yeah, I think um, that's right. It was Dublin 2019 uh, that you jumped the double clear in that Nations Cup and uh, and uh, helped uh, take Britain through to the um, Nations Cup final in Barcelona and, and winning the Aga Khan there in Dublin. I was actually lucky enough to be there that day, so I remember it. So uh, yeah, a really great result on, on that occasion. Yeah, that was awesome. Emily, you've referenced the fact that Ben Mayer was out there at the Europeans with you and, and trains you a couple of times and definitely can't ask for anyone better than the Olympic champion <laughs> no. to have alongside you. What um, what sort of advice did he give you last week and, um, and, and what did you learn from him? You know, Ben, myself and Winnie, it's really a team effort to get Winnie to be how he is. Ben really helps me a lot. I would not have the horse that I have today without Ben. Um, I don't have the experience to know how to calm Winnie down or to know, you know, little tips and tricks that I can do in the ring to settle his head shaking. And just small things like that make such a difference with Winnie. He's such a sensitive horse. And, you know, Ben helped me work him every day. And it's so nice to have somebody that you've had a relationship with for so long. We've been training together for so long that, you know, it's just somebody to lean on. You know, anything I needed, Ben was there to help me and it was really great. Yeah. And who else is sort of in your support team? You mentioned that your your mom was out there with you. Who else was sort of around you for the week? My mom and my groom, Fiona, who's been with me since I was jumping meter 20s um, like six or seven years ago. And so I had Ben, Fiona, and my mom. My dad, unfortunately, wasn't able to come. He had to stay home with all the kids. <laughs> um, but he was watching every day, very nervous. So I have a great support system. And, you know, all my family from America were watching. My grandpa wakes up at all hours of the night to make sure he doesn't miss anything. He's hilarious. He is a superstar when it comes to that. I, I'm really lucky. I have a great support system behind me. Mm. And Emily, I have to ask you about that because uh, I think some of our listeners might say she sounds a bit like an American. What's your what's your background with riding for Britain, but obviously I think based in America? So I was probably eight when I started coming over to England with my dad. My dad's English and my mom's American. And I actually started riding seriously or more seriously and made the decision that that's what I wanted to do with my future in England. And um, our farm was here. We didn't really have so many ties to horses in America. And um, it just made sense. You know, my coach was English. My dad was English. I lived in England. I, you know, sort of grew up in England and in America. It just made the most sense to switch. And, you know, I remember Di and I had a conversation about it. And I loved how much of a team feel it felt, you know perfect example at the European it was the most fun and the happiest I've been in so long and it's it's honestly purely just because of the team you know we were just having so much fun the whole time well I think that uh, you know it's, it's our gain and America's loss so uh, definitely don't go to the U.S. <laughs> now how do Thank you, you. <laughs> how do you sort of split your time between the two countries now Emily where are you mostly I actually am not in America very often, so normally what my schedule would be is I'm over here other than 
January to April when the Winter Equestrian Festival is on. Um, so yeah, I'm only over in America for that period of time for that competition. And otherwise I'm over here hopping around, you know, I do the globals and the nation's cups and things like that. It's just, I love America. It's just the sport is over here. You know, it's, it's, it's where it's at and I have to be here to do the sport and, you know, I enjoy it and for sure it's different and, I'm lucky to be able to split my time so I don't have to say, I don't have to pick or choose one or the other, if that makes sense. No, definitely. And uh, like you say, January to April, the Winter Equestrian Festival yes. in, in Wellington, Florida, <laughs> is a pretty good time to I'm be in America. Escaping. I'm escaping the cold. <laughs> yeah, I've been to, been for a couple of weeks to that show a few times. It's a brilliant time to spend yes. a bit of time in Florida in the sunshine when it's, it's cold It's really here. nice. And it's so nice to be able to stay in one place, you know, get a little bit of normalcy in your life. Yeah, for sure. I think uh, that's a that's a show we'll have to talk about at some other point on the podcast, listeners, because it's a, a pretty amazing one and difficult to imagine if you haven't been there. But it's sort of twelve weeks of rolling shows all in the all in the same yes. place, as Emily says. Yeah, and gives the jumpers a chance to, as you say, stay still and have a bit of yes. a, a bit of normal life. <laughs> well, Emily, it's been a couple of days now since you've presumably come home from uh, from that championships in Germany, and you're sort of reflecting on the whole experience. How do you feel looking back at it now? Yeah, like I said, I was a little bit disappointed with that first day. And I think if maybe I, you know, went in there and just trusted myself and trusted Winnie and went with the flow a bit more, it would have been a very different week. But I'm still super happy with my clear in four. And, you know, it was a great experience. And I think sometimes I have the expectation that I'll just go and casually win the whole thing. And, you know, I think you have to go into it with that expectation or you've already lost before you even go there but I have to remember I'm I'm only 23 and I you know Winnie's never done a championship I've never done a championship you know we we learned a lot and I'm I'm excited you know I've got my eyes on WEG that's for sure. Brilliant and what's next for you in the short term the next couple of months where are you competing again next? I actually head to Rome for two weeks tomorrow which I'm really excited about um, I've got a different group of horses over there and I'm going to give Winnie an easier couple of weeks and, you know, let him have some downtime and lots of grass. <laughs> we don't really have a solidified plan, but in the um, next few weeks, I think I'll focus a bit on some globals and the other horses and let Winnie take a bit of a chill pill for a few weeks. <laughs> oh, well, he deserves a bit of a rest after his uh, yes. fantastic efforts. Yeah. Well, thank you so much, Emily, for joining us on the podcast, telling us about your, your week making that senior championship debut. Congratulations. And we look forward to seeing a lot more from you and Winnie in the future. Thank you. I'm Polly Bryan, dressage editor at Horse and Hound, and I'm here chatting today with my colleague Gemma Redrup, who has just spent the last week out in Hagen in Germany, where the European Dressage Championships have taken place. Hi, Gemma. Hi, Polly. 
So the Europeans were super exciting, weren't they? Um, big headline was that Britain won Team Silver. Charlotte Dujardin won another individual bronze in the freestyle, which was just fabulous. Um, but of course, this was actually the second championship of the year. The Olympics took place earlier in the summer. And it was the exact same team that went out to Tokyo that also went out to Hagen for Britain. Um, Gemma, just what was, the, what was the sort of vibe out there? What, what were riders sort of thinking and saying about this quite unusual situation? Yeah, so a lot of them, well, all of the ones that I spoke to sort of said that they, for example, Carl Hester and Charlotte Jardin and um, Jessica von Brido Vandel as well said, um, said that when they got back from Tokyo, they sort of decided to put the horses in the field for a week. And then they they all looked so well a week later that they were like, okay, fine, we'll crack on. <laughs> um, I think Jessica actually originally was saying that she wasn't going to bring her, her amazing horse, TSF Delera BB, to uh, the European Championships, but she was just bouncing at home. So she she brought her. So I Aww. think, and, and it was quite interesting as well, Carl actually said that on the, the plane ride home, for these horses was like several hours shorter because they mm. were actually granted permission to fly over Russian airspace, which they hadn't been allowed to do on the way out there. So he sort of credited that to the horses coming coming back from it so well. I think that they, they shaved about eight hours or something off the journey seven time. Seven or eight is that hours. Right? Yeah, seven or eight hours. I mean, you can imagine what, you know, imagine how big a difference that would make to mm. these horses having obviously travelled out there. And of course, Gareth Hughes' horse, Santano Van Hoff Olympia, he did also go to Tokyo. He was the travelling reserve. He didn't compete out there. But of course, the, the point of being that reserve is that you do actually have to prepare yourself to ride down that centre line. So he had to go out there, do all of the training, all of the prep work. He didn't ride the tests. But mm. apart from, apart from, from that Santano had the same experience as those other horses and um, I must say all of the British horses in particular looked so fresh and well and you would never have guessed they'd already done a championship no you really wouldn't like they all of the the ones that I think there were 22 horses competing at these Europeans that were also in mm. Tokyo uh, all of them in their coats looked incredible so, yeah, 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 no, the horses did look absolutely super. Um, and the, the whole championships looked like it was just fan- fantastic. I mean, it was obviously a different vibe from Tokyo with, with the spectators. How was that? It was, it was odd, but I loved it. <laughs> <laughs> um, I realised how much, and I know everyone says it, but I realised how much I've actually missed, you know, having, mm. having that buzz. And, there, you know, there were several thousand people there I think and there was an atmosphere and it was yeah it just made it even more exciting It, it was it was a really really great show yeah, I mean, I was following along on the um, on the live coverage, and I mean, even on that, you got a real sense of of the people who were there supporting and the clapping and the and it was the sort of thing I almost didn't notice at first because, of course, it is normal. And then it occurred to me that actually, <laughs> that is now not that normal anymore. <laughs> yeah, and it's it's interesting as well because there were some there were a couple of nine year olds competing there as well, actually, mm. and horses should point horses. out horses, yes, not riders, <laughs> not riders, um, and. They haven't really been exposed to crowds ever in their life. So um, it was really interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I know a couple of the riders did say, didn't they, how how wonderful it was to have the crowds back. Um, Obviously, it was an incredibly exciting team competition. Britain were actually the overnight leaders after the first day of the Grand Prix, weren't they? Which was super exciting. I know. I got so excited. (laughs) (laughs) 
<laughs> I think we all did. It's not very yeah. often, uh, you know, you'd go into day two with, with Britain at the top and, and Germany, actually, the you know hot favourites. They were down in the bronze medal position yeah. overnight. Of course, they then did ascend back up to the top. They won the gold medal. Britain got silver. Denmark were very, very close behind in bronze. But what an exciting mm. competition. Just, just tell us how it unfolded from your point of view. Yeah, so like you say, it was really exciting. After the first day, we, we were in the lead. Gareth Hughes did a, a lovely test on Sintano van Hoff Olympia for 74.39%. And then Lottie Fry, who's only 25, but has obviously already achieved so much, pro, um, pulled out a great a great test with Everdale for uh, 77.67%. So yeah, yeah that put, put us at the top there. And She was the overnight leader herself on the leaderboard, wasn't she? Yes, she was, mm, yeah. Amazing. And, Germany, um, they had Dorothy Schneider did a 74.98 and then Helen Langer Hangenberg did a 73.96. So, which was, they were disappointed with, you know, mm. there were mistakes in their tests. So it was all a bit like, oh, yeah. <laughs> oh what's happening? Uh, <laughs> but um, yeah, it was exciting. Yeah, oh, it really was. And then that second day, obviously, that was when the really, really big guns came out, especially for, for Germany. Um, I think it's probably worth pointing out, actually, they only had one horse there at Hagen who went to Tokyo, and that was Delera, Jessica's horse. Um, Isabel was on her her second horse, Firegold. Um, and Dorothy was riding a younger horse called Faustus, who um, was a late call-up in uh, place of Showtime, who she rode in Tokyo. And Helen was there on her travelling reserve horse. So they did have a relatively different team in terms of... Of horsepower but still an incredibly strong one to so have won gold again with yeah. <laughs> a different team like that yeah. is is very impressive but Britain were so close and actually we would mm. have been even closer Carl had a slightly disappointing ride didn't he on that first day yeah. he he had a couple of a couple of mistakes with on Vogue who is still you know pretty inexperienced and and he's really hot and it goes back to what you were saying about these horses not having seen crowds you know our ones are the same yeah I mean Carl was saying that He's quite on Vogue's quite a shy horse, so he'd rather just he'd rather just leave and go out the arena. <laughs> he'd, than, he'd rather and, do it quietly at the back. <laughs> yeah, just sit at the back. And he also said he would be fine if they could sort of if there was one horse stood in the corner that he could see while he was doing his test. He's right. just really really shy, but he's also obviously by Jazz, who's who's sort of known okay. for producing mm. hot and spooky horses. So, but yeah, Carl did a great job. Yeah, and actually, I was so struck by how. I mean, how much potential that horse has. And we've mm. always known it, but it, and it really came out in Tokyo and it really came out again here. Um, his Grand Prix special test was something very, very special, I thought. Um, mm. And the silver medal on the team competition was followed up by Britain finishing. You could look at it both ways. It's either um, a bit painful or incredibly exciting. They were fourth, fifth and sixth, weren't they, on, on the third day? Yeah, so if, they'd, if the scores had counted, if that had been the team competition, would have won. <laughs> <laughs> I think uh, but anyway it wasn't but it's it is so exciting because all four of those horses have you know they're only just getting started really there's so much still to come from them and that was very much sort of what what every member of our team was saying you know mm. this is we're just getting started so it's very much watch this space with them. Yeah, absolutely. And for Charlotte to go out and get another bronze medal in the freestyle with uh, Gio, who is only 10 years old. He's really, really young. Um, it's amazing. And he's I... so cute. Yeah, it's a <laughs> little pumpkin. Yeah. He's called Pumpkin at Home for everyone yeah. that's not that's not sure. He's, his real name is Gio. Um, he's known as Pumpkin at Home because, uh, well, I think it's self-explanatory, really. He's a little, mm -hmm. a little orange ball of, uh, of power, isn't he? Yeah, he's amazing. 
Um, I thought one of the teams that was most interesting was Denmark, actually. They were very, very strong, yes. weren't they? Yeah, they were. And, they, you know, they, they obviously got the, the team bronze. Um, there were really good performances from, well, all of them did well, but um, in particular, Catherine Defoe and Bohemian, who uh, they, they actually had a change of tactics, she said, from how she rode hit this horse in Tokyo, where okay. it didn't quite go as planned. She sort of... She said in Tokyo, she was like, I was riding for a medal and we we're going to get that medal. And he sort of was like, mm, no, actually, you're not. <laughs> um, not in a nasty way, just in like a, I can't, you, I can't do this sort of way. And so she, yeah. took, she said she took all the pressure off him at these European championships and was like, yeah, cool, let's do this next movement. And he was like, yeah, okay, fine. And sort of did it that way. And she obviously, I mean, she... She had a great, a great championships. And then also mm. Daniel Backman Anderson riding Marshall Bell, who's just a nine year old. Um, so they those two riders and their horses really contributed to, to that team medal. Yeah, absolutely. And I was super impressed with Daniel's horse. I haven't seen him mm. before. He's, I mean, he only has sort of started at International Grand Prix this year and done a couple of tests. Um, I think everyone was slightly blown away by, uh, by him and, and just what more could come from him. As you say, he's a nine year old. Yeah, he, I mean, he's just, gorgeous um mm. the horse <laughs> and <laughs> and um yeah Daniel was so so excited about him and um yeah again watch this space yeah definitely um so I was going to ask you actually for your sort of combination of the championships in terms of a horse and rider who you know really caught your eye for some reason really impressed you or, or maybe surprised you not necessarily um the medal winners although of course it could be um yeah. is the one that springs to mind yes so it's one called Contestro DB um who is an 11 year old that Finnish rider Henry Rost rides and he's actually a jumping bread horse so mm. he's by contendro and is gorgeous big bay horse and i sort of i'd had had half an eye on him through the week and then it was their freestyle on the last day i stood sort of in the mix zone there where you could watch and i was like oh my god what is this horse like his i've never seen anything passage like it it's just like so much energy and really off the floor and yeah really like it caught it, the horse caught everybody's eye. Um, I sort of stood there, and people were like, "Oh, who's this? Oh, you know." Yeah. Um, so he, yeah, he really impressed me, and he finished sixth in the freestyle on eighty-two point six percent. So, yeah. He was amazing. And actually, I, I really liked that he did well here because um, poor Henry had a bit of a nightmare with that horse in Tokyo where the horse was mm. very, very spooky and, and really did not like that Tokyo arena. They did not get a good ride there. So it was so lovely for them to come back here and for that horse to really show everyone what what he can do, which is an awful lot. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. And um, jumping's loss is definitely dressage's gain. <laughs> definitely. Um, okay, so... What about a highlight of the competition? I mean, there were obviously so many, but if you had to pick one moment or one test performance that you just loved the most and would, you know, watch again. I mean, it's probably a bit predictable, um, <laughs> but it would be um, Jessica and Delera's freestyle performance. It yeah. was, there were people in the crowd crying. Like oh. <laughs> it was, it was really, it was moving like to see they're just, they're just such an amazing partnership together and the whole picture they create together is like it's soft and just incredible and her music was I think it's the one she did in Tokyo to La La Land yeah um and I mean she got over 91% and beat 
um, Catherine Defour and Bohemian into second mm. by almost three percent. You know, it was just, it was beautiful. I loved yeah. it. <laughs> yeah, I I have to agree with you there. I mean, I've said before, I I wish Jessica was British. She <laughs> is just the most lovely rider. Um, you know, she's lovely to watch. She's lovely to chat to. She has so much love for that horse, doesn't she? And it really yeah, shows. Yeah, I was just about to say the same. I sort of follow her on Instagram and she adores that horse mm. <laughs> it's quite clear to see so yeah and the horse clearly adores her as well so it just it was really special yeah it really really was um I mean I've, I've now watched that freestyle you know several times I think <laughs> but but I I I could never get bored of it I really really no. could watch it over and over again and that's five gold medals for her now in six weeks so easy peasy yeah <laughs> Yep, that's pretty good going. But five golds in a, in a single year. And yeah, as you say, in the space of only about six weeks. Okay, so obviously you spoke to lots of the riders out there and they all had um, all had lots to say, I think, didn't they? Was there a particular quote that um, just has stuck with you from somebody? I think it would be one actually that Carl said in press conference uh, after they won the team medal. It was, they were referring to the fact that they'd been in gold medal position after day one. And he was sort of saying that, you know, Charlotte did talk about how it's exciting, how we could potentially get a team gold. Um, But he said, but ultimately it will happen again one day. And it's Mm. exciting having these young horses for for them to go forward. And he, he then said, we didn't win anything for a long time and now we're winning medals and none of us want to go back to the old days. And that really sort of, stuck with me and I yeah. fully believe that they will never go back to the old days so um yeah it, that was that stuck with me oh I can imagine and yeah I fully agree with you I think the strength of, of British dressage now is such that you know we we have so many phenomenal horses and riders coming through um you know not just those ones that were on the team and yeah I think the future is looking really really bright they obviously won bronze in Tokyo silver here we've got the world championships next year I'm gonna say it yeah. they're gonna win gold I think they're gonna yes, win gold <laughs> absolutely we've got to have the belief keep the faith always but no I, I, think, I, so. I think they do have a real realistic chance from what Mm. I've seen uh, last week for sure absolutely I would agree well um, it's been an amazing week it's been fabulous to you know follow all of your updates out there we've got um, the full report in the magazine this week so do make sure you buy that to read all of the coverage Um, Gemma it's been great catching up I hope you had a wonderful week out in Hagen thank you I did thank you very much Polly Thanks very much to Polly and Gemma for giving us that update on the Dressage European Championships. I'm joined now by two members of our news team. I have our news editor, Eleanor Jones. How are you doing, Eleanor? Yeah, all good, thank you. Just sort of getting back into the swing of normal life, having come back from the Europeans and nice to be riding my own ponies again. Yeah, it's been a couple of weeks since we've had you on the podcast and you had that uh, nearly a week at the European Show Jumping Championships. Did you have a good time? Yeah, brilliant. I, th- I think my biggest uh, achievement may have been driving on the wrong side of the road and in a left-hand drive car. But um, yeah, it was an amazing place, Reason Beck International and, and fantastic sport. So. Oh, well, well done on the uh, driving on the wrong side of the road. That's always a stressful part of trips abroad. <laughs> we also have with us our senior news writer, Lucy Elder. How are you, Lucy? 
I'm very well, thank you, Pippa. I'm just about back down to earth after um, all the excitement of Tokyo Paralympics and things. And I'm looking forward to, um, actually, when this podcast comes out, I'll be at Blenheim this week. So lovely to have something else to look forward to after after the come down of that awesome trip. So yeah, all good. Ah, oh, yeah, no, it's good to uh, good to get back out. I'm uh, having been kind of uh, totally sort of living the Tokyo hangover. I'm looking forward to the eventing Europeans as well now. And uh, yeah, also been riding my horse a bit. I went cross-country schooling on Sunday, so that was fun. And did a very dressage trot, I think. Yes, <laughs> Eleanor is referring to the fact that I posted a clip on my social media where uh, I was in a dressage lesson. And, you know, it was one of those things where it was very kind of Ruth McMullen, you know, that whole thing about, you know, ride better and the horse will go better, even if you're not thinking about the horse. And I'd been thinking about lots of things that weren't really about how good my trot was. And then suddenly I was like, oh, my trot's quite dressage. And my instructor was like, yes, dear, this is a dressage lesson with just the right degree of sarcasm. <laughs> quite funny. My trot was quite dressage though didn't you it was very dressage he was pointing his little toes and everything right on to the serious news lucy you have been working on a story about driving tests and it's news that was released late last week and i think it'll affect a lot of horsey people what is this all about so this is the news that the car and trailer towing test is coming to an end we heard, as you said, late last week, this was slightly out of the blue, that the last tests are going to take place on the 20th of September, which is obviously big news to the equestrian industry, particularly for anyone who passed their car driving test from 1997 onwards and doesn't have those grandfather's rights. And given how many people in the horse world tow trailers for, you know, getting their horses around the place. Um, it's also quite big news on on another level. So the reason that the government's scrapping the test is to make way for an extra 50,000 lorry driver tests as there's a shortage of drivers at the moment. And I'm sure our readers and our listeners will have heard about this in the national press. There's been quite a lot of chat about it. And also they'll probably have noticed in the supermarkets and shops lately that there's been quite a few empty shelves. And that all comes down to supply chain and a lack of drivers without going into the nitty gritty details of how Brexit and the pandemic and the global shipping crisis and everything is playing into that. Um, but essentially, what's connecting those empty shelves with um, people driving their horses and trailer around is the fact that those testing centres where you go to do your trailer test are the same testing centres in a lot of cases as where you'll go and do, you know, a lorry driver or a HGV test. So what effectively the government's trying to do is to free up space and time in order to train more HGV drivers um, and help with that supply issue that we've been seeing in in a lot of in a lot of places, um, not just the horse world. Obviously, there's also a large part of our industry involved in driving HGVs as well. So that's going to be a knock-on effect um, there with these extra tests. So yeah, as you said, big impact on the horse world um, in several ways. Yeah, and, and I think an interesting aspect of this story is that at the moment, we know when they're saying the last trailer tests will be, and I would imagine anyone who's got one coming up will be cancelling it anyway, but we don't actually know when the law will change so you can drive your trailer without one if, if you passed after 1997. Is that right? Yeah, that's my understanding of it. And obviously this came out, as we said, late last week. Um, so we've not had a huge amount of working days in between that and, and the issue going to press and us recording this podcast. But what is really important um, is that people don't jump the gun. There's quite a lot of, you know, headlines in the snapshot of, oh, you know, trailer test ending, current trailer test ending, which is true. Um, but as you said, the law changing, we don't have a date for 
for when that's happening yet. So while there's not going to be any further car and trailer tests after the 20th of September, that isn't the date the law changes. So what is important to note is that unless you've already have those those categories on your license that allow you to tow um, a trailer behind your car, um, either because you've passed your car driving test, you know, pre-1997 or because you've taken the towing test, you can't just go and hitch up your horse and trailer, crack on and it'll all be fine until the law changes. Because if you do, you are breaking the law. You, that comes with a risk of a £1,000 fine, six points in a driving ban. So as far as what date it is actually going to happen, um, the most confirmation we've got is autumn 2021 and as soon as possible. So hopefully we won't be waiting long to know when, when this limbo sort of period is going to end. But uh, yeah, do check all the small print. Yeah, it leaves people in a bit of a strange situation where they can't take a test, but they can't drive the uh, can't drive their trailer until the law changes. So that is a bit of a weird one. I feel sorry for people maybe who are in that slightly in between situation. Um, and there have been some really strong reactions to the news on social media in in all sorts of different ways. What sort of thing have you seen, Lucy? Yeah, as you said, Pippa, um, strong reaction in all sorts of ways. Um, definitely fair to say mixed. I'm always quite cautious about how I handle social media reaction on any story really as um, those platforms and the algorithms are basically do create a bit of an echo chamber but it has definitely been a range of reactions that I've seen so seen some concern over whether it's 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 safe really um, I mean if it is then why did they bring in the car and trailer towing test back in the 90s um, while others are possibly relieved they're not going to have to go through that. Um, but there's some people who are, you know, quite angry really about shelling out for um, the time and the cost of the training and testing, time off work and things to get that done. And there's also, there's quite a complicated explanation on the government website about who's going to be entitled to refunds. So to boil that down, if you've booked your test, in it's you know upcoming uh, before the 20th of September then do take a look as there are some cases where you can get a refund but in broad strokes uh, for those who've already paid for their training and taken their tests I think you know that's you're not going to be getting your money back on those so we've seen a bit of understandable anger about that and um, we've also what I think is quite interesting is quite a lot of reaction from people saying that they still would like that training or they are really glad that they had to undergo that training in order to get their test because of how much more confident they feel towing. Especially, you know, you've got your precious cargo on board, you've got your horse in the back and road safety isn't something to be trifled with either. So I think it's going to be quite interesting to see if training, provider, training providers continue to, you know, see demand for that from people who want to want to know how to tow safely tow properly with their horse on the back yeah it's an interesting one isn't it lucy i am a holder of that trailer test mm. i was one of the first generation to take it i think i passed my driving test in maybe 1998 so i did have to take the test and I do think I gained an awful lot from doing the training and doing the test. I failed the test the first time, had to do some more training um, and then passed it. And um, then I've continued mostly to drive alongside my my mum, who has those grandfather rights being older and is a very experienced driver of a trailer. And I do think there's a lot to be gained from doing that 
that training and it's not just about driving on the road you have to also do a hitching up test you have to be able to reverse your car up to your trailer and you know get the uh, the, the two bits to join up so to speak you have to do a reversing test assuming it's sort of the same as what it was when I took my test and that is a while ago now but you had to reverse sort of through an S bend and finish up with the back of the trailer in a box that was a certain size and to be able to judge that without getting out of the trailer and you know I don't know that I would ever have learned to reverse a trailer as well without those many 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 hours spent practicing we used to go to the station car park on the weekend when it was quiet and set the pattern out with bollards and I would have to practice it I, I mean, I was driving my three and a half ton horse box from the age of 17 um, as soon as I passed my, my driving test because I could. And then a couple of years ago, I did the seven and a half ton test. And even though I've been driving this three and a half tonner around for ages, I, def- I definitely benefited from that. It was just, I think it was confidence more than anything. And even though the, the truck I drive now isn't a huge amount bigger, it was just you've just become a lot more aware about things and you know reversing and driving a bigger vehicle and all sorts of things which are which are good reminders really especially when I did my car driving test quite a long time ago now but um yeah as you said there's all those extra things you have to learn when you're driving a trailer and uh, I think yeah as you said Pippa as well it'll be interesting to see how many people still want to you know go and learn how to do that properly I have to say I've got only just I'd like to add um the grandfather rights that I could go and drive a trailer on my license and I didn't have to do a test to, I drive a seven and a half ton and didn't have to do a test but um in some ways I think driving a trailer is harder than towing a trailer is is harder than driving a seven and a half ton because seven and a half ton you just have to you know be careful <laughs> is the basic principle isn't it but when you're towing there's so much more especially reversing so I think I wouldn't I would never go and just put my horses in a trailer and drive them off up the road yeah it's an interesting one and of course there are all sorts of ramifications of this new law for people who give trailer lessons because although some will probably still want training it will inevitably be fewer people and fewer lessons and for people who manufacture trailers and maybe even four by fours there might be a bit of an upswing there so a lot of a lot of things coming out of that story and I think it's one that we'll be following and, and doing some more about in the next few weeks. Well, thank you, Lucy, for updating us on that. Eleanor, you have been writing about mental health this week. It's such an important subject and it was World Suicide Prevention Day on the 10th of September and the support service Riders Minds released a film to coincide with this. Can you tell us a bit more about that film? Yeah, so this this film I would highly recommend I suppose powerful is the word uh, to describe it. And it was, for anyone who doesn't know, Riders Minds was set up by the eventer Matthew Wright with his wife, Victoria. And of course, um, so sadly, Matthew took his own life in February. And so seven months later, to coincide with uh, the World Suicide Prevention Day, Riders Minds has released this film, which um, as part of it was the first time Victoria has has spoken publicly since that terrible event. Hmm. Okay. And as you say, it is a very powerful film and, and, and watch with Victoria involved. Who else was involved as well as Victoria? So it was presented by um, Lizzie Greenwood Hughes and she spoke to Matthew Heath, who was Matthew Wright's best friend, um, who, and he's, he's now taken on the, uh, I think all of, of Matthew Wright's horses. Um, and he, he was saying, you know, it, it, in some ways when you're a professional rider, you have got the best job in the world and the actual riding of the horses, that's being able to do your passion for your job is amazing. But then he was saying, well, there's everything else that comes with it. There's all the extra pressure of having it as a career. There's, you know, all, 
everything else you have to deal with. Um, and he, he said, you know, it's so important that there is this service and that it can be anonymous if, if, if needed to be. And then there, uh, Lizzie also spoke to a clinical psychologist who works with the Injured Jockeys Fund. Um, who was saying, you know, it is such a tough industry um, and, and pointed out that even if you are someone who who is very, very successful and wins a lot, you're still going to not win more times than you do win. Um, and, and that can be hard to deal with. Uh, and he was saying, you know, we need to get to people early in this in this profession. We need to speak to them at the beginning of their careers and and have mental health on the agenda, uh, you know, from from the very start and say to people that this isn't just good for you it is also good for your career to, to make sure your mental health is supported um, and she also spoke to an equestrian influencer who had, had been in a very dark place um, having been bullied at school and and called her doctor and got some help and and she spoke to the riders minds director sylvia bruce who who was a very successful banker who had also made attempts on her own life and and has now been transformed as she put it Gosh, well, a lot of interesting points and advice, I think, in that film. And I think it's one of the most sort of fascinating aspects is that point around the fact that for a lot of people, horses are therapy. But if you're a professional rider, that can be taken away because although you might still love riding horses, there are so many other pressures of running a business and so on. And actually, when you do ride horses, there's pressure there as well, because you've got to do well for owners and for the sake of your career. And maybe you feel pressure from social media and having to report what you're doing. So that, that horses can be a release for a lot of people, but also become something quite dark for others. Eleanor, finally, if someone felt they would benefit from the services that Riders Minds offered, wanted to know more about that, where would they look for that information? Best thing is to go on the website, which is just ridersminds.org or Google Riders Minds, and, and it's all on there. There's, you know, you can click, I need help. You can click to donate also if you'd like to donate. And um, yeah, there will be support there for anyone who needs it. Great. Well, good to know where that support is on offer. Thank you very much, Eleanor. And thank you to Lucy for joining us today too. Now we're going over to performance psychologist and mental coach, Charlie Unwin. Charlie works across sport, business and the military and helps riders to optimise their performance from the inside out in training and in competition. He is passionate about working with equestrians because the horse's performance is an extension of the riders. His clients won an incredible four gold medals at the recent Olympics in Tokyo, as well as three silvers and one bronze. Over to you, Charlie. So on this episode, we're going to be talking about managing your inner game. And the idea of an inner game is perhaps slightly curious to a lot of equestrians, especially given that you're part of an amazing sport where the animal, the, the horse, forms the focal points for much of what you do. Done well, riders make it look beautiful. Uh, however, it can sometimes draw our attention away from what's going on inside. Given that largely the horse performs as a function of how you perform as a rider, I think it's really important to understand what's going on, what actually affects our own game and our ability to influence the horse and get the best out of the horse. So if that's what we mean by our inner game, what does it really consist of? For me, the whole reason I got into psychology in the first place was through my own experience in sports. 
Uh, and not least in the discipline of shooting, target shooting within the sport of modern pentathlon. And shooting was the most uh, difficult sport to get your head around, not least because everything is in your control. You've got this pistol that you're using, which is the same pistol every time. You're shooting the same target every time at the same distance. Even the lighting has to be the same. And yet, of all the five disciplines that I was involved with, which was shooting, fencing, swimming, show jumping, and running, it was the shooting events where people's performance varied the most. I was a bit of a statistician, a bit of a geek, and I used to study the results all the time. And what I noticed is that people's results could be really high one day and really down the next. And yet, this was a discipline where, like I say, everything was the same. So... What does that mean for me as a psychologist? This is what got me into psychology. This is what got me thinking. What's going on inside that's affecting our performance on the outside? And my job largely is to help people to do the things that they can already do, which doesn't sound particularly exciting. However, when we get people performing at their best more consistently, it's amazing what you can achieve. If you take your best ever performance, and you think about that day, that competition, that round, that race, that game, whatever it may have been, you know you can do that because you've done it before. But what if you could repeat it every single time? What if you were able to recreate the conditions in which you were able to do the same thing every time? How good would you be? Most people would say, yeah, pretty good. And for me, that's what our inner game is all about. It's being able to recreate the internal conditions which allow uh, our external performance to be consistently at its best. And so what forms the inner game? What, what makes it up? What components are there? Well, fundamentally, broadly speaking, there are two things. There's thinking and there's feeling. Thinking is the kind of mental cognitive components if we're focusing on something different every time we try and do something, it's no wonder we get a different result. Therefore, being able to train our attention onto the right things and onto the things that we know are going to help is a skill in itself. It sounds really easy, doesn't it? But under the pressure of competition, being mindful enough to being able to hold our attention on what is simple and what counts is far more difficult than we realize. And we have to train ourselves to do it properly. The problem is in, in training, it's kind of easy because we have fewer internal distractions and probably external distractions as well. So holding our attention is kind of fairly easy when we're at home. But when we get into the pressure of competition, the high stakes, we have all these other interferences, all these distractions that pull our attention away from the simple things that actually make a difference. So that's one area. But then the other area is around the feeling, what I call the feeling dimension. And this is emotional, but it's also physiological, being able to manage our physiology in order to, again, perform consistently at our best. And there's a whole load of things that sit behind this. Um, nerves are, of course, a topic of conversation that a lot of people like to talk about, and that's why a lot of people come to me, and it will be something that we cover. However, what I've learned is that we cannot understand someone's psychology without understanding their physiology. I cannot help someone to think and focus differently 
and perform better without also understanding their physiology, the way that their body responds to certain thoughts. So for example, certain thoughts might make us feel stressed, anxious, which then um, translates into tension in the muscles. And if we ignore that, or worse still, if we're not even aware of that tension, then we are creating the internal conditions of inconsistency. We are, we are literally driving on the road of inconsistency because suddenly our body isn't responding how it normally responds. Suddenly we're a bit more robotic or tight on the horse and then the horse responds differently. And so it's, it sort of kicks off this chain reaction of events. So in very simple terms, the inner game is all about being able to create an inner consistency that allows us to perform consistently at our best on the outside. So I realize that this stuff can sound like it's reserved for those at the very top of their game. However, this is important for everyone. And that's a really important point to get across. All the techniques that I use, all the work that I do with riders are as relevant to someone doing their first competition as they are to someone competing at the Olympic Games. And the reason for that is because the way that our inner game affects our outer game is true and consistent for everyone. We're talking about the human condition here. And if the way that you're thinking or the way that you feel is impacting your effectiveness on the horse, well, that's relevant for anyone, right? Um, so hopefully uh, this is something that you can all relate to and probably not just in the saddle either, uh, but in life off the saddle as well. So I'm going to be talking a lot more in future episodes about how we might be able to achieve that. But hopefully that's got you interested. Uh, and by all means, visit our website, center10.com. If you're a rider or you're a coach, we've got some great courses on there uh, for you to take part in and uh, courses which I know uh, will certainly help improve your performance. So uh, we'll see you there and I'll see you in the next episode. Thank you, Charlie. Next week, Charlie will be back to talk about setting effective goals. We'll also be chatting to showing rider Robert Walker about his Horse of the Year show memories and reflecting on the week's news, including all the action from the National Dressage Championships and Blenheim Palace Horse Trials. Thank you for listening to the Horse and Hand podcast. See you next week. The Horse and Hand podcast is a Media Cage production.